0: Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments. Now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a number of UK equities. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Victoria Scholar, who is the head of investment at Interactive Investor. Victoria, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So this is the first time that we have welcomed Victoria to the the podcast and we're going to be today taking a look at a number of UK equities, some of the biggest stories um, over the last week um, and some from, from this week. We're going to be looking at the price action, we're going to be looking at what's driving movements out there in the market. But before we we get into it, Victoria, please, would you be able to give us, first of all, an introduction to yourself, as well as Interactive Investor for those listening that that aren't aware of the company.
1: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Victoria um, and I'm head of investment at Interactive Investor. Uh, We are the UK's second largest investment platform for private investors. Uh, 25% of UK shares are executed on our platform. And our USP really is that we operate a flat fee model, which means that we don't charge a percentage fee. So uh, hopefully that allows customers to keep more of their wealth. Um, and in terms of me, I come from an economics background. I started uh, my career in sales and trading at the investment bank Nomura uh, during the global financial crisis, though. <laughs> and I've um, since worked uh, as a market analyst and a financial journalist at IG, uh, CNBC and Bloomberg. And um, I'm also a regular markets commentator on Sky, BBC, uh, LBC and some others. And I've got a regular column in the Telegraph money section called Rate My Portfolio where um, readers send in their portfolios and I make some suggestions about how to sort of make them a bit better or more suited towards their investment goals.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much for that introduction, uh, Victoria. So, as I said at the beginning, we are going to be focusing on on UK equities uh, predominantly. Uh, looking at FTSE 100 companies, although there will be some um, that uh, they're in the FTSE 250, we're also going to be touching on a couple of US stocks mm-hmm. as well. So, Victoria, let's let's get started. And probably one of the uh, the biggest headlines for, for, from companies, and this is very much a company specific story, is Metro Bank. So. Uh, they completed a 925 million pound capital raise over over the weekend it had been reported last week that they were looking in the region of of 600 million i think that was a report uh, by the times we saw a huge sell off in the share price last week and and that really built on a on a real steady decline in in metro bank shares uh, over over the past few months so, Victoria, when, when you're looking at this, you know, to some extent, it did go over under the radar um, for a while, you know, that there was a fine that they received previously from, from the FCA. And they'd put in an application to look at reducing their, their capital adequacy earlier on in the year, which was rejected. But, you know, when they, when they came out and said that they were looking to raise capital, there was a huge movement there in uh, in the shares to the downside. I mean, would you view this this capital raise, it, I mean, was, was it a rescue deal? I mean, were they in real dire straits? I mean, it, was there a risk that Metro Bank could have failed if they didn't uh, get this capital raise away?
1: Well, it's difficult to say whether it was uh, sort of on the brink of collapse, but it's certainly being described as a rescue deal. There's this Colombian billionaire who's coming to take control of the lender. He's uh, becoming its largest shareholder with a 52% stake, investing £102 million pounds in the company, contributing to that fundraise that you talked about, and um, the share price is receiving the news well. We're seeing the stock is up by about 5% uh, today, and actually it's managed to reverse uh, last week's slide. So it's up about 3% over the past five trading sessions. But if we put this into longer term context, uh, we can see that there's been a real lack of investor confidence in this company for a long time. The stock is down by over 98% over a five year period. Uh, So clearly, a lot of investors have been uh, shunning the stock, which is pretty disappointing, because I think a lot of people were pinning their hopes on this challenger bank as as a name that was going to sort of take on the big banks like Lloyd's and HSBC and Barclays. Uh, And I think there was a lot of enthusiasm for that idea, particularly in the aftermath of the global financial crisis back in 2008.
0: So you mentioned there a challenger bank, Metro Bank, and of course there there are other UK challenger banks. The problems that were being faced by Metro Bank, can they be observed in any other challenger banks? Is it a problem that was across the sector, or was this really <laughs> a problem just for Metro Bank and the inner workings of that particular institution?
1: Well, I think clearly there's been a lot of turmoil in the banking sector this year with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and others uh, in the beginning of 2023. And then, of course, we also had the rescue deal for Credit Suisse. Now, um, part of these issues were related to the uh, rising interest rate backdrop. Others were because of uh, volatility in the cryptocurrency space. But in terms of Metro Bank, I think that its problems were quite idiosyncratic to the bank itself. Um, It's been having uh, issues with its finances for a long time. Back in 2019, there were queues formed outside of some of its banks sparked by negative comments about its financial position on social media. And then there was this major error about how it classified its loan book in the same year, which sent shares crashing by nearly 40% in a single session. I think that this is a company that grew quite quickly and it Problems along the way, and of course, during that period of growth from 2010 onwards, interest rates were at record lows, and we know that banks tend to uh, earn via uh, lending and 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 receiving interest rates on those products. So um, that low interest rate environment was certainly a challenge to Metro Bank as well and was potentially a challenge to other banks too. But um, I think that a lot of these problems were related to its super speedy growth uh, and uh, also some problems with its uh, own finances and and how it classified certain assets.
0: Indeed, thank you. So, We're going to move on now, Victoria, and look at the house building sector, because this is a real investor favourite. Of course, the wealth effect associated with house house prices here in the UK is significant. But we've had a really torrid time for house prices over the last year. The most recent Halifax House Price Index indicated a 4.7 decline in average house prices uh, over the past year, there was a reduction of 0.4% month on month. So that's the the backdrop for the housing market. But if we now look at the, the house builders, uh, Victoria, how much of a concern is it you, you feel for, for investors when they're looking at house prices and looking at the house builders in terms of where the house prices are going and the potential pain for, for house builders – or looking at these house builders over the past two or three years, down pretty heavily, uh, you know, well beneath uh, recent highs. Do you think that the bad news that we're seeing from that from the housing sector at the moment is already priced in to some extent to these house building shares?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the bad news is already priced in. You know, we are in a difficult period for house prices, and that, of course, has a major knock-on impact to the house builders because um, it makes the incentive to build a lot less attractive and rising interest rates also make it more expensive. And also we know that there's going to be less demand for their end products. So um, there's no doubt that there's a huge correlation between the house builders and house prices. Um, we've seen quite a lot of discrepancy in terms of the share price performances of different house builders this year. Persimmon, for example, uh, is down about 17%, but Barrett Developments and Barclay Group are actually up. Now, part of this could potentially be explained by the extent to which they're exposed to the first-time buyer market, which is more heavily hit by um, rising interest rates. Um, But I think that a lot of the uh, negativity uh, has actually already come to pass now. We are coming towards the end of the rate hiking cycle. Um, We saw from that latest Halifax data that you mentioned, that house price growth declined in September, but um, it slowed. So in August, the drop was 1.8% month on month, whereas in September, that fall was 0.4%. So we're seeing some of that negativity temper. Um, We've seen that a lot of uh, the mortgage brokers have been having to uh, cut their offers to try and draw in demand because interest rate offers and mortgage offers are not just correlated to what the Bank of England is doing, but it's also um, a function of demand and rising interest rates, of course, dampen demand for mortgages. uh, And so they're having to respond by offering more attractive uh, deals. And then of course falling house prices are good for first-time buyers it means that um, they don't have to earn as much to have a deposit to get onto the housing ladder Uh, so if we were to see ongoing declines in house prices we could see um, buyers respond by returning back to the market particularly given when you look at rental prices, which are at record highs. Uh, so you know, a lot of people are not gonna to want to get into the rent- rental market if they can possibly avoid it. So it looks as though house prices will continue to soften into next year. Uh, and we are in this sort of higher for longer interest rate environment. So it doesn't look as though mortgage rates are gonna get that much cheaper over the coming months. Um, but I do think that a lot of the bad news is already baked into
0: the price. Indeed, indeed. I would have to, to agree with that, Victoria. So, next company up we're going to be looking at is Tesco's. So, they they gave an update to the market last week. And it looks as though at this long-running battle with the discounters that Tesco's have and has been locked into. Of course, Sainsbury's is also in the same situation. But it looks as though Tesco's is, is gaining market share, uh, Victoria. <laughs> But there's there's the question of whether this is at this point in time in a cost of living crisis and the inflationary pressures that whether market share is the most important metric when you're looking at the cost base of of Tesco's. You know what, what would you say is the most important factors for investors at the moment? Is, is it gaining that market share and and possibly increasing sales, or is it really managing the the cost base and trying to maintain the margins? For, for companies such as Tesco's?
1: Well, I think that all of these metrics are important, market share, controlling costs, and also sales growth too, because um, what we've seen in terms of the cost of living crisis is that it's really played into the hands of the German discounters, Aldi and Lidl. Just today from Kantar, um, they reported really strong sales growth of both around 15%. And that compares to Tesco and Sainsbury's at about 9%. Now, of course, they're smaller, so there's more potential for growth. Uh, Tesco is still the market leader in terms of Um, Market share. Um, But I do think that all of this uh, competition that we're seeing from the German discounters and from others um, is a really good thing for consumers because uh, the supermarkets are really facing an uphill battle against a declining propensity to spend among consumers. So they've all been desperately cutting their prices this year to try and attract customers through the doors. And actually, this has helped to reduce the overall level of supermarket price inflation. Some staple foods are actually now falling in price as a result. And I do think a lot of this is driven by the German discounters because uh, shoppers are becoming much more price sensitive. They're desperately seeking out a bargain. We've seen that there's been a lot of trading down away from expensive branded items towards cheaper ranges, um, which they can find particularly at Aldi and Lidl. Um, So it's making the others have to really be on their toes and be super nimble. Um, So for consumers, this is a good thing. But, um, you know, we're seeing that we're in a sort of defensive market, there's a lot of nervousness out there. And so consumer staple stocks actually appear to be weathering the storms quite well. Tesco shares are up pretty strongly this year. Um, because of course, food is an essential item, and we're always going to have to spend on it. Uh, so, so it's it's been quite a good sort of safe haven um, sector this year for investors.
0: Thank you. So we're going to move on now, Victoria, if we may, and look at oil prices and BP and Shell. So, of course, at the moment, there's uh, a human tragedy unfolding in, in Israel, and that mm. did have an impact on, on oil prices uh, yesterday. And we're looking at, at oil prices now, which aren't as high as they have been over the past month. We We were... In the high 90s at one point, we're now uh, in the high 80s. But we're seeing BP and Shell, in particular Shell, moving up to to hit some of their highest levels for for, for some time. So it would be good to get your views on the, the interaction between oil prices and and what's happening at, at BP and, and Shell, because we've got oil prices quite significantly below recent highs, whereas we have Shell, for example, going back up to those highs and and it's looking at the commodity market and then the the, the equity market. There's a, a slight disconnect yeah. to to some extent. You know what we were seeing yesterday in BP and Shell was that a knee jerk reaction to what was happening? Was it was it traders trading on on news or, or do you think there's a there's a longer term uh, fundamental disconnect in the price of of, of the companies, BP and Shell, and, and the oil price that we're going to need to see snap back into line at some point?
1: Well, I think that oil prices are highly correlated with oil stocks like BP and Shell, but they're not perfectly correlated. Um, BP and Shell are equities and are also much more a function of sentiment and um, appetite for risk. Uh, and there's been some sort of risk off sentiment uh, recently that has uh, weighed on equities. Uh, and of course, that doesn't have an impact on oil prices. Oil prices are much more a function of demand and supply in the market. Um, so we've been seeing this big run up in oil prices, particularly between June and September. Like you say, uh, it's been tapering off last week, although This week, again, um, it's had another boost from the Hamas-Israel war and the potential impact on Iranian supply there. Um, But there's been talk from analysts about a new sort of oil super cycle. People are talking about the potential for oil to hit $100 again, uh, potentially even higher, back up to um, $120 even in a few years. Uh, And and there's a lot of different factors at play. Uh, And of course, a higher oil price would be beneficial to the likes of BP and Shell, not just in terms of their share price, but also their earnings, of course. Um, But in terms of some kind of the key drivers that we're seeing at the moment, a lot of this run up since the summer has been focused on the supply side with OPEC plus constraining output, carrying out these voluntary output cuts, particularly from Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia. And that's helped to offset the weaker demand backdrop. Um, and it has been pushing oil prices higher. Then we've got the Israel-Hamas war. Um, That has the potential to negatively impact oil supplies and in turn uh, push up prices. And we've also got a long-term low levels of investment in fossil fuels because of the shift towards the green green economy to combat climate change. Um, And all of this is um, offsetting what we're seeing in terms of the demand side, um, where demand is pretty sluggish we've had this whole higher for intre- higher for longer interest rates discussion and a sluggish global growth backdrop um, but it's more the supply side of the equation that seems to be dictating price action um, more recently um, but last week when we saw um, that 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 wheat print um, it feels as though we are having having a rebound again this week, but uh, it does feel like quite a volatile space at the moment. Um, and and it's a difficult one to predict because it's so intertwined with geopolitical factors um, that, of course, are uh, very, very hard to predict.
0: So you mentioned there, uh, uh, Victoria, the, the green energy targets for for some of these companies. And that, that's just a point I'd just like to, to pick up on. You know, with uh, oil prices going up towards a hundred dollars, we're starting to see a lot more focus going back onto the onto fossil fuel companies. Mm. You know, if we start to see prices run away above a hundred dollars, does this narrative around these companies should become greener? Does that start to slow? It's starting to slow already to to some extent, and. You have these companies coming out and saying, look, let's be realistic now. Um, you know, in terms of the revenue that we can generate from clean energy, it's not going to be as much as we can generate from fossil fuels in in the short term. So, you know, let, let's take this long term view. Does that start to accelerate? And do net zero targets start to fall into the background if we see oil prices running away with themselves?
1: I think that with oil prices running away, potentially going above $100 a barrel, um, the big risk really for um, economies like the UK and the US and others, um, is the knock on impact on inflation. Um, So there'll be a real consensual effort from the West to want to bring oil prices um, back down under control. And of course, that would go nicely hand in hand with combating climate change and the shift towards uh, the green economy. Um, So I think there'll be a real incentive to try and find a way to increase supply Um, to try to uh, bring oil prices back down to a more manageable level because, uh, like the UK Chancellor has said many times, um, the the inflation is really one of the most pressing economic problems that we're facing at the moment, and it's contributing to the cost of living crisis. It's why interest rates are going up. It's why energy bills are going up. Uh, It's why everyone is struggling um, in terms of uh, prices going up much more quickly than average wage growth. Uh, So it really feels as though the the focus at the moment is to try to get price pressures back down under control. And that can't really be done with runaway oil prices.
0: Thank you very much. So we're going to move on now, Victoria, to discuss two US stocks. And the first one's Nike. And really good results Mm. by all accounts uh, recently. So... You know, in terms of those figures, Victoria, what, what did they look like? And I want to reframe this question in a, in a similar way to Tesco's. And, and you mentioned Tesco's being a consumer staples company and it's you know being relatively defensive. Would that same theory apply to Nike? Do you feel? If you're looking at their numbers, supposed cost of living crisis globally not just in the US or the the UK but we're seeing still huge huge demand for 200 pound trainers 150 pound trainers whatever Mm. they may be these are hugely expensive um, items and they keep getting more expensive but Nike consistently is able to to charge these prices and, and, and it's met by demand so if you look at a company like Nike and you look at the the customer profile. Do you feel that it's more of a defensive play or, or a cyclical play? If, if the customers that they attract, which are, tend to be younger people, uh, young younger adults, you know, may not have the the cost burdens that, that other people do, and they always want the latest trainers on their on their feet. Does that give Nike a defensive element uh, to them as a company from an investor standpoint? Or is it still really a cyclical stock that if things really get uh, quite messy out there in the, in the economy, people are get, you feel people are going to rain back on, on spending on these hugely expensive trainers? Well,
1: I think if we compare it to Tesco, which is definitely in the consumer staple space, um, Nike is much more of a consumer discretionary play. You know, we can all live without $150 trainers, even though it might not feel like it. Um, <laughs> okay. And... But, but it is that they are operating at a much cheaper price point than the luxury brands, where we can see that shoes are sold for $1,000 or, or more. Uh, but I think given its share price performance this year, it's down by nearly 20%. It does feel like it's trading more like a cyclical stock. Um, And in terms of its earnings, it it did report pretty strong earnings, which beat expectations uh, in that fiscal first quarter, the latest set of results. But actually, the revenue number missed forecasts for the first time in two years. And it was interesting, if we look at the performance of North America, which is its largest market, that's actually struggled with sales down 2%. Um, So it does feel as though um, the cost of living crisis is biting. Uh, It has been raising prices to help try to offset some of those pressures from cost inflation. Um, But that, of of course, could discourage uh, consumers from wanting to to buy their items. Um, I think that Nike has quite a wide range of price points within its offering. You know, you can probably get um, T-shirts for 20 or 30 or $40. Uh, but then, of course, you can get trainers for $300. So um, it might be that uh, people are still shopping there, but they might not be spending as much, which would, of course, weigh on revenues.
0: Thank you. That's really interesting stock to, to keep an eye on as uh, as the economy uh evolved over the, the coming months uh in uh, in the us also here in, in europe so we're going to finish off now victoria if we may with another us stock it's one of the so-called fangs but it's netflix they i believe uh, are set to report in the coming days what uh, what are you keeping an eye on there what are the key metrics <laughs> and what do you expect from uh from Netflix?
1: Okay, so I think it'll be really interesting to look at its crackdown on password sharing. That's something that's been helping the stock this year. Um, We saw that its subscriptions rose sharply in its latest results um, because of that clampdown, um, which helped earnings to outpace expectations. Um, It'll be interesting to have a look at uh, the competition that it's facing because there are just so many subscription um, streaming services these days, you know, there's Disney, Amazon Prime, Paramount, Hulu, of course, Netflix and so many others. Um, and with the cost of living crisis, uh, this is an easy spend to cut from the budget. If, if families or individuals are struggling to make ends meet, this could be one of the first things to go. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether Netflix is feeling the heat from its rivals. Um, The Hollywood strikes is something that has impacted its productions, its TV shows and and movies. Uh, And Netflix has already said that it's going to be upping its prices following the end of these strikes. Um, So it'll be good to look at uh, how the sort of reduction in availability of content or new content uh, could potentially have an impact on demand. uh, And also later down the line to see whether those price increases actually have an impact on consumer behavior, whether people won't be subscribing because of those price increases, which we don't know how much they are going to be, whether it's going to be $1 or $5 uh, or whatever. But um, it'll be interesting to see whether that actually uh, has an impact on, on demand. Um, So there's quite a lot to digest. But this is a stock that has performed well this year. It's up by um, about 30% so far this year and uh, up nearly 70% over the past five years. But it was heavily caught up in uh, the sell-off that we saw at the beginning of 2022 uh, with the so-called tech wreck on the back of rising interest rates and inflation. But it has been rebounding quite nicely ever since the lows um, in June of, of last year. Uh, So there's a lot to digest, really. But um, these tech stocks that were so heavily punished last year have been some of the star performers again uh, this year. Um, But whether that can continue is the real question. Whether that upswing that we've been seeing has more legs uh, is one of the big questions for investors.
0: Thank you very much. Just one more point on uh, on Netflix. Now, it, as you mentioned, there there are a huge number of subscription services out there at the moment. So, yeah. I mean, personally, I, I lost count how many I I, uh, I have <laughs> and. I understand the point that, you know, when things get tight, people start to, to pull back on these. Now, you know, people might have four, five, six, you know, there's probably six or seven different options that you could subscribe to. Do you think Netflix would benefit from their their reputation? They, they were the first major streamer. So if somebody's looking at seven different subscriptions that they're paying, you know, ranging from £5 to £15 a month, for, for example... Regardless of the price, do you think Netflix would be one of the last of the selection that that people cut? And do you think that will give them some benefits over their consumers going forwards?
1: Yeah, I think there probably is an element of that. If you've been a subscriber for Netflix for a number of years, you might be more hesitant to let it go than a subscription that you've only had for a couple of months. But my real feeling is that Uh, streaming consumers are very fickle, uh, myself included. And uh, we all look around to see which shows we want to watch and then subscribe accordingly. Uh, So I think it really is all about content. Uh, And if Netflix can continue to produce highly sought-after shows, uh, then I think it will continue to thrive. But, of course, it's a really expensive sector to be in. It costs uh, millions and millions to produce programs like the crown and other hit shows um, so i think as long as they continue with their high levels of investment and continue to create blockbuster hits um, then it should continue to do well
0: as uh, as they say content is king <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's really going to drive this market going forward so victoria that's that's been amazing thank you so much for joining us today
1: thank you so much for having me
0: And just as a quick note to to listeners, do check out the notes to this podcast. There'll be a list of the companies that we touched on, um, so you can refer back to those. Uh, So once more, Victoria, thank you very much. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player.